COVID-19 Seattle. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Aaron Granillo. The United States this week hit a somber milestone in its battle with the coronavirus as the death toll surpassed 200,000. It's difficult to wrap our minds around that figure, but think of it this way. Somebody in the U.S. has died due to COVID-19 every 90 seconds on average since late February after the country's first confirmed fatality in Kirkland. On Sunday in Washington, D.C., the bell at the National Cathedral rang out 200 times, once for every thousand people who've died. It took about 20 minutes. Many of the country's earliest deaths happened across western Washington, including at least three in Everett that involved members of the same family. Within 13 days, I lost my two sisters and my mom. I'm still numb from the loss of my family. That's Raymond Lee. He tells Cairo 7 TV when his sisters and mom died in March, he couldn't say goodbye in person because COVID restrictions prevented him from going to the hospital. I feel that there's a huge hole in my chest. That's how I feel right now. And I walk around every day feeling empty. There was this study done over the summer that found every COVID-19 death affects at least nine surviving family members. So that means... Today, about 1.8 million people in our country are mourning. So, Dave, why doesn't it feel like the rest of the country is grieving with them? Well, it depends on who you watch. If you're watching a Donald Trump news conference, he acknowledges the deaths, but he doesn't want to wallow in it. Uh, Joe Biden, by contrast, has talked in very emotional terms about this. And, of course, from time to time we hear from, from family members. But sometimes the number is so high, you can't as you point out, wrap your mind around it. Also, we've had a number of disasters in the interim, right, where people have also died. The pictures there are much more vivid. You see fires racing through a home. You see a a hurricane hitting a community and causing flooding. I mean, you understand that. Somebody dying quietly in a hospital room is not the kind of thing you televise. Is 200,000 deaths an important enough milestone, do you think, to create urgency? Or have we just become numb to this at this point and we're kind of disengaged? Well, if you have had no family members affected, then I guess it's it's possible to be disengaged. I, I know two in my family who had it. Fortunately, they their symptoms were, were very mild. But I know what it's like to to lose parents. I mean, they both died of natural causes, but it's it's a crisis in your life at least temporarily. And when it happens prematurely, it hurts uh, a lot more. I think that um, in the beginning, when we saw forecasts, which were in this area back in March, would we have, did we believe it? I mean, no. did, did we think back in March when we had maybe a handful of cases, it would go to 200,000? And now those same models are predicting, well, the UW models pre- yeah. predicting another 178,000 people yeah. will die by the end of the year. And that's even with with some protection. It's even with, um, you know, a certain number of people wearing masks. Let's take a look real quick at how we stack up internationally, because this is going to be a talking point in the presidential election. The Trump campaign has been saying all along that the response has been adequate. We're hearing that earlier this week from White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany, she had mentioned a the figure of 2 million deaths, because there were some public health doctors had said, well, we could see 2 million deaths if in we this did country nothing. if we did nothing. So the argument there is, well, we're not at 2 million, we're at 200,000, right? So that's 
good, I guess, in, in some way when you compare it to that number. But let's look at it this way. The United States death toll is the highest in the world by a, by a huge measure. We have less than 5% of the global population, yet we have suffered more than 20% of COVID-19 deaths worldwide. By that measure, we're not doing well. One of the early models was Sweden. They were going to try doing it without any kind of mandates, and they did. They had a higher death rate than other European countries, um, and reports vary on whether their economy is better off or not. Uh, what we do know is, though, that Sweden's culture is the kind of culture where you do the right thing whether you're told to or not, right? So even though there weren't mandatory mask uh, directives, people wore them anyway, and they distanced anyway. So that's that's the question, whether Sweden is a lesson that we shouldn't have shut everything down or whether Sweden really is like comparing apples and oranges. Some U.S. senators say it's up to them now to stop the Trump administration from politicizing the pandemic. Among them is Washington's Patty Murray. The Trump administration didn't just start its political interference yesterday, and we are not going to expect them to cut it out tomorrow. So Congress has to make it stop. And so Murray introduced the so-called STOP Act. It stands for Science and Transparency Over Politics. It will create a task force to conduct a thorough investigation into political interference in our public health agencies. And I do hope every Republican who has spoken out about how important it is we stick to the science will support that bill. Because you cannot stand for science if you will not stand against political interference. So Murray's latest example of this alleged interference involves the CDC this week removing the guidance that says the coronavirus spreads through these tiny aerosol particles. The agency said it took that document down because it was just a draft and it had not been properly reviewed. But there have been some other examples of questionable updates and guidance from the CDC in recent weeks. So Dave, is there anybody we can trust anymore? I don't know. I, first of all, how many times are we going to see a draft report that somebody didn't verify? What's going on here, right? Yeah. And I think what's going on here is that there are employees who believe that their data should be shared with the rest of us without going through political vetting. And so they leak it out to a journalist somewhere so they can make this point that somebody is trying to make this look better than it is. Which, to me, is crazy. I don't know what you gain by that. I don't know. I mean, do you consult the CDC website every day? <laughs> I don't. No. Uh, the, the advice hasn't changed that much. So the cost of making what seems to me to be a relatively minor tweak, which is not going to make me stop believing that aerosol can spread this, is, uh, is huge in terms of people losing trust in what they're being told by their politicians. So um, I don't know if whether Senator Murray's bill is going to get anywhere, but um, I think it would be interesting to find out who gave the order and why. But I'm not holding my breath for that information to come out. <laughs> I don't think so either. But let's talk about the consequences of public mistrust. This is something that actually Senator Tim Kaine brought up yesterday during a hearing. He was questioning the CDC director, Robert Redfield, on the agency's decision to remove that guidance on aerosol spread. When you put up a document at the CDC that you have just testified is accurate, and then it's changed to suggest that the risk is more minimal by someone for some reason— it contributes to the massive confusion that is so so troubling to scientists and so troubling to 
people. And then that leads to, well, gosh, is the vaccine going to be safe? I don't think he's wrong, Dave. I mean, all of this back and forth and all of this politicization right now, people on both sides of the aisle now are not trusting the vaccine process. I know. Well, that's too bad because the vaccine is the one thing that would make all these shutdowns and masking less necessary. So uh, I certainly hope we not only get a reliable vaccine, but get enough people to use it so that we get that vaunted herd immunity. I'd love to get your thoughts on this exchange between this. This also happened during yesterday's Senate hearing. Kentucky Senator Rand Paul, Dr. Anthony Fauci from the coronavirus uh, White House Task Force, also the nation's leading expert on infectious diseases. Um, this is a long exchange, about three minutes or so, and let's listen to it. Dr. Fauci, today you said you are not for economic lockdown, yet your mitigation recommendations from dating to baseball to restaurants to movie theaters have led to this economic lockdown. Do you have any second thoughts about your mitigation recommendations, considering the evidence that despite all of the things we've done in the U.S., our death rate is essentially worse than Sweden, equivalent to the less developed world that is unable to do any of the things that you've been promoting. Do you have any second thoughts? Are you willing to look at the data that countries that did very little actually have a lower death rate than the United States? You know, Senator, I'd be happy at a different time to sit down and go over detail. You've said a lot of different things. You've compared us to Sweden And there are a lot of differences. And you said, well, you know, there are a lot of differences between Sweden. But compare Sweden's death rate to other comparable uh, uh, Scandinavian countries. It's worse. So I don't think it's appropriate to compare Sweden with us. Yes, we have, I I think in in, in the beginning, we've done things based on the knowledge we had at the time. And hopefully, and I am, and my colleagues are humble enough and modest enough to realize that as new data comes, you make different recommendations. But I don't regret saying that the only way we could have really stopped the explosion of infection was by essentially, um, I want to say shutting down. I mean, essentially having the physical separation and the kinds of recommendations that we've made. You've been a big fan of Cuomo and the shutdown in New York. You've lauded New York for their policy. New York had the highest death rate in the world. How could we possibly be jumping up and down and saying, oh, Governor Cuomo did a great job. He had the worst death rate in the world. No, you misconstrued that, Senator, and you've done that repetitively in the past. They got hit very badly. They've made some mistakes. Right now, if you look at what's going on right now, The things that are going on in New York to get their test positivity 1% or less is because they are looking at the guidelines that we have put together from the task force of the four or five things of masks, social distancing, outdoors more than indoors, avoiding crowds, and washing hands. Or they've developed enough community immunity that they're no longer having the pandemic because they have enough immunity in New York City to actually stop. I challenge that, uh, Senator, because I I want, uh, please, sir, I would like to be able to do this because this happens with Senator Rand all the time. You were not listening to what the director of the CDC said, that in New York, it's about 22%. If you believe 22% is herd immunity, I believe you're alone in that. 
There's also the pre-existing immunity of those who have cross-reactivity, which is about a third of the public in many we'll estimates from studies, which would actually get you we to about three I'd like to talk to you about that also because there was a study that recently came out that pre-existing immunity to coronaviruses that are common cold do not cross-react with the COVID-19. Thank you, Senator. Dr. Anthony Fauci and Senator Rand Paul. Whew, you get the feeling yeah. that uh, Fauci's a little Fauci fed up? Finally get, yeah, he's finally had it, and he's going to uh, tell people what's actually going on rather than just letting Rand Paul spew this stuff. I think, uh, I mean, Rand Paul's libertarian at heart, I know, and so if there is a state that wants to use his advice and just allow herd immunity to take place, I say they should volunteer and do it, and we'll all watch. But we now know in hindsight the right time to close things down would have been where there were maybe a few dozen deaths instead of a few thousand. And I think if we followed his advice, this 200,000 number uh, we look at, that'll look small compared to what would happen next. So as I said many times before, nobody takes anybody's advice anymore. You only learn through experience. But this is one of those things where the experience is can be has, has a finality to it that most people don't want to uh, risk. So, like I say, if there's if there are states somewhere where uh, people believe in Rand Paul's philosophy of the survival of the fittest and uh, and natural selection, then uh, by all means, find a cooperating governor and take all the regulations away and open everything up and forget about distancing and forget about masks. And the rest of us will watch you. And if everybody's fine and they quickly develop herd immunity with a few fatalities, then we'll all do the same. But uh, you go first, okay? We knew that when schools reopened, students and teachers would inevitably contract the coronavirus on some scale. And yet we've gotten early data back from the schools that charged ahead anyway and reopened for in-person classes. And those earliest reports show that while there have been outbreaks, the virus is not spreading as quickly and easily inside school buildings as many feared, especially for younger children. So here are the numbers from Brown University's National COVID-19 School Response Data Dashboard. Over a two-week period beginning on August 31st, researchers found only about a quarter of a percent of students had a confirmed or suspected case of the virus. For teachers, it was a little bit higher, but still just at about half of a percent. Only been a few weeks, and this data was all voluntarily reported. Uh, Too early to jump on this and say, yeah, let's reopen schools. Well, I think so. Um, I think that uh, I, I proposed a few weeks ago that the way to do it with schools is, again, get volunteers. Find teachers who are okay with it and find students and parents who are okay with it and try a non-socially distanced uh, school reopening. Give the teachers the N95 masks, which protect you from the incoming, right, because it's the older people who are more susceptible than the younger people, and then see how it goes. And uh, let the rest of us uh, watch on on Zoom to see how it goes and then uh, go ahead. Uh, Because, again, unless people see it actually play out, I don't think they will uh, they will believe it. You can have all the data in the world, but it's very painful to sit there and watch your business fail or watch your kids education lapse, um, thinking you're preventing something without really knowing you are. And that, I think, is the place we've come to. How do you feel about the idea of letting the younger kids get back to school? Kids like in kindergarten and first grade, that's what's happening uh, in in the Issaquah School District. They're setting uh, October 15th 
as the date to bring back those students uh, in those age groups. I think Lake Washington, Snoqualmie Valley School Districts are also mm-hmm. telling families to prepare for that. Uh, they all think they've set a date, though. Um, but yeah, I mean, the younger kids that are not uh, as likely to perhaps uh, show serious symptoms or maybe even get the virus, the evidence shows. Uh, how do you feel about that? Well, if that's if that's what they want, I mean, you have to make that choice for yourself. I think it's a it's a serious thing, and the problem with this is that you can spread the virus without manifesting symptoms. That's a pretty insidious way for a virus to evolve. But you know, here we are, which leaves us in this position of having to take preventive measures before you actually see anything. And then, if those measures work, you'll never see anything, and so people will come back and say you did it for nothing. So uh, I guess we just have to experiment on ourselves and satisfy uh, satisfy us that if we suffer because of it, at least we've helped future generations. Tune in next Thursday as we discuss more of the latest coronavirus news. You can subscribe to this podcast and also find our news coverage on MyNorthwest.com or listen live at 97.3 FM.